Survey data shows upcoming improvement in manufacturing, but a softening service sector. U.S. rail volumes dip as carriers grapple with flooding impacts. Specialty stores and electronic retail top the list for longest wait times. Iconic Capital invests in truckstop.com at a $1 billion valuation. The White House says Trump would let trucks cross the Mexican border even if it closes. Providence Equity buys Global Trans back from the Jordan Company after just eight months. And stock stumbling, Lyft announces $50 million in transportation initiatives. I'm JP. And I'm Chad. And we discuss all these issues and more on this week's episode of What the Truck. Triumph Pay is the leading carrier payment platform in transportation. With over 50,000 carriers paid, Triumph Pay helps to drive capacity, efficiency, and cash flow for brokers and shippers. Visit triumphpay.com to learn more. Hey, great to be here with you, JP. What you drinking? I have a Bell's Official, which is a... Easy for you to say. Hazy India Pale Ale. Um, It is... Pungent American hops combined with wheat and pills and malt, resulting in a smooth, <laughs> aromatic, and juicy IPA. And I just totally I, read that I, off I, the I, off the can. Why do you say that, Chad? Why do I say that you did what you just did? Yeah. Why did um, you Why did you call me out like that? I thought that's what you were about to say. Okay. Anywho, um, that's what I'm drinking too. Thanks for bringing it. The uh, mm-hmm. Bell's official. I'm not sure if it's worth the uh, price tag, but boy, it's uh, pretty tasty. It was like ten bucks for a six pack. Oh, I guess that's not it's so like bad. Nine ninety nine. Actually, that's quite reasonable. My bad. Well, it might be a new fave. Um, <clears throat> here we are uh, giving you, ladies and gentlemen, our listening audience, the weekly market update. Uh, actually, before that, let's give a thanks to our new sponsor. Triumph Pay. Yeah, Triumph Pay is awesome. They're um, this really cool uh, bank and factoring uh, bank in based out of Dallas. Uh, we've become really good friends with some of the people over there over the past couple of years. Um, it's always great to see them hang out and um, you know, see them at different industry events. It's, thanks a lot, Triumph Pay. Thanks for the love and the belief and support. And for our weekly market update, JP survey, it's we got some positive news. Everybody, everybody thinks that we only say give the give the bad news. No, we give the good news too. And the good news is, what is the survey data telling us about uh, improvements in manufacturing? Yeah, this is the um, I this is ISM survey data, um, and it has to do with Institute of Supply Ma- Supply Management. Yeah, and it's basically they call um, you know it's like it's like quasi official data. Basically, um, it's it's less laggy than government data, so a lot of economists use it. And basically, what they do is they call manufacturers and factories and stuff like that, and just ask them like, "Are you you know what?" Are you doing more? Is your business growing or is your business not growing? They talk to, um, yeah, purchasing managers, and it comes out monthly. And the purchasing managers are in manufacturing and service sectors. And they, uh, I think there's 18 different industries. Yeah, they break it. They, they break out the industry, uh, the, the data really well, um, which is also useful. Uh, and in this case, I think in our in in t- uh, this this month's report, sixteen of the eighteen different industry sectors uh, are uh, in some kind of a, an uptick here. Uh, at, yeah. After March. Yeah. So one of the um, kind of so the way that this survey works is basically 
you ask people if their business is growing or contracting, and then that is kind of rationalized on a zero to 100, I guess, um, yes. scale. And with anything above 50 being growing, anything below 50 being contracting. And, and um, anything at 55 or above being considered steady growth. Yeah, sol- solid growth, mm-hmm. steady growth. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the worrying things about the February data was that uh, we had dipped below that 55 mark. So it was sort of a bearish sign for manufacturing activity in the country. And it had been going down for several months. Really. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was kind of like, okay, like, oh, God, like maybe this is getting serious. Like it's we're getting below like solid growth. Like it, maybe there really will be a downturn. This could be this could be bad. But um, it turns out in, in March it ticked back up above 55. To what is it? Fifty five point three. Fifty six point one. Fifty six. I believe. Oh no, that was um, no. Uh, service has fallen uh, to fifty six point one. Yes, fi- I, I'm seeing uh, a low in February of fifty four point two, and yes, fifty five point three. Fifty five point three. So, so basically, we've. Yeah, you know, I mean, one one month does not a trend make, but I mean, th- this is good news for. The overall health of the economy, and more importantly, sure the, the freight economy, it's uh, should be supportive of uh, freight volumes on a national basis. Uh, we've still got. I think we'll continue to face the headwind of tight labor conditions. Uh, but some of the things I think that we will continue to recover from um, is the very disruptive weather. You know, like I think that weather has been a real thing uh, nationwide. Uh, it's uh, we had the extreme, extreme colds in. February in the Midwest and the upper Midwest. We, ha- I mean, the Sierras in the West have been absolutely pummeled with, with snow, which is good from a precipitation standpoint, very disruptive from a logistics and freight standpoint. And of course, now we've even been having the historic flooding. Yeah. Uh, in Nebraska, the, you know, the, you know, the Midwest. Um, and <clears throat> uh, important to say that NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Right, administration um, set that they had a pretty startling forecast for potential mid mid um, yeah Midwest flooding going in going through May, basically saying that like yeah there are large parts of the Mississippi and Missouri River valleys that are still at high risk for severe floods through the entire spring. Um, so, and it's been affecting <clears throat> housing growth. It's which you know affects flatbed and a lot of different um, uh, economic indicators, especially uh, related to logistics. So it's um, affected housing. It's affected agriculture. The destruction, sure. not, not necessarily the destruction of crops, because it's not like you know corn, for example, was in a sort of mature. You know, growth phase in in you know March when when this happened. Although but, I will say, just add, I want to add to that, they're all the stored surplus of grains yes. are ruined. Yeah, stored surplus is very bad. the The condition of the soil itself has been um, contaminated in many cases by sewage and and sort of chemicals and things that have spilled and f- become flooded. Um, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, actually said, um, I think last week, that up to one million calves, you know, baby cows, died in the floods, um, which 
Wow, it, it would, could really affect beef prices going forward. You know, there's different. There's different. If you look at like meat futures, there's different kind. You know, you've got pork bellies, you've got live cattle, you've got feeder cattle. Feeder cattle are cattle you buy young cows and you fatten them up and then you take them to market and it's a kind of a different stage in the life cycle of a beef cow. But um, at some point, we would you would think that the mass drowning of these cow of these calves is going to have an effect on on feeder on feeder cattle prices it brings up a, a lot of different uh, um things are uh, and of course and then sorry the other thing is just that uh you know bnsf union pacific sure uh really uh had a lot of trackage damaged um by the flooding a lot of washed out tracks a lot of just Destruction delays, you know, snarled networks, rerouting. Rail all. is down. Rail is down this year, year over year. We might as well start t- uh, tackling that uh, part of our weekly market update as well. Um, yeah, that's an article by um, one of our new um, writers, uh, Joanna Marsh, who's worked on rail for a long time. Yeah, and she really uh, deep dives into uh, the, the the specifics. But I think the over the overarching theme here, and I guess we can tie these two stories in together. Uh, in a, in a sense, uh, there is uh, you know I guess to conclude a little bit of what we were just talking about, there is a sentiment of some overall economic optimism, and it looks like there's a strong chance of this being a you know a, a quarter that builds and builds toward a summer peak. Now, I don't think anybody's trying to peak beyond that, really, like in a reasonable way, but it right, looks like right. it's, 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 <clears throat> there have been a number of suppress, suppress, suppressive kind of headwinds, and uh, we're looking to maybe emerge from it in spite of a whole lot of myriad of, you know, pretty, pretty so- strong resistance. And I have to say, maybe um, a few weeks ago, I was a little too harsh on Covenant for blaming the weather on, you know, what could be kind of a soft uh, first quarter earnings. It seems like lots of people are starting to really take account of all of the different ways that severe weather you know, disrupted their operations. Sure. Okay. Um, you're mea culpa. Uh, let's see. Uh, but rail is, um, you know, a total rail U.S. traffic has dropped to uh, about 4.6%. I've talked over the past <clears throat> few weeks, even on, on FreightWaves Radio and other places, just talked to, to various rail folks. And, um, you know, whether it's coal or just overall, like, volumes are are, are down. Carloads are down. And, and, I, and I would say that, like, we can talk about, you know, capacity and we're not going to deep dive in all of it but overall definitely a huge roadblock whether you're talking Norfolk Southern Union Pacific uh, BNSF you know Kansas City Southern and, and and all they're they're all faced with right there in the middle smack dab in the middle of the country uh, is a gigantic dis- disruption for yep. real and, yep. and the flooding and it just means that even if they can circumnavigate around the problem areas that just infrastructure, just like the integrity of a lot of uh, bridges and, and, and other places are just going to be a while before they're they're made whole again. And in the meantime, they can reroute and stuff, but there's just simply going to be delays and tie-ups. And it's it's impacting rail. Did, did, did Joanna mention intermodal volumes at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, that that was a part. There were a, there were a lot of stats and detail in it because I would, um you know one of the things that people always 
one of the sort of truisms about intermodal on the rail is that it's you know clearly it's intermodal so it's in theory it's competitive with truckload you know a truck can move a container you know oftentimes much faster than intermodal's the not down as much as railroad it's just down 0.6% i see i see interesting yeah. okay because at a certain point i think people if truckload contract prices continue to deteriorate you might see it make it be you know trucking to become more economically competitive with rail again and therefore more vo- you know rail intermodal volumes would go down truckload and intermodal volumes go up that, that sort of thing but We'll, we'll we'll wait and see how that plays out. What uh, one of the things too that we're seeing uh, as we um, we I, I wouldn't say we're fighting the fight on the war on detention exactly, but we are shining a light on the war on detention, <clears throat> and uh, you know ca- as a uh, our business meet from our business media uh, really our responsibility is to shine a light on issues that we see. No one likes detention as we've talked about on this podcast before, and one of the uh, the strongest defenders. Strangely enough, from our data, are specialty stores and electronic retail stores. That's uh, interesting. Not not so much like the typical food industry places that you might think. Right. I mean, I, I can see electronic retail. Um, and you know, uh, Zach Strickland wrote this article based on some of the uh, wait time data that we have broken out by vertical. Um, I kind of think that. Electronic retail makes sense because it's you have to load it carefully and unload it carefully. You've got to check. The, there's more quality assurance that comes into making sure that things aren't damaged. It's very high-value cargo. You've got to count everything because even, you know, a couple missing pieces could, you know, that, that could represent potentially a lot of money. And so I kind of see why that would take a while to – Right. Process a shipment, but um, what did Strickland say about the specialty stores? Well, he was he was saying that uh, they in many cases they're mom and pop type of setups, and there's fewer docks, fewer people to unload, so they you know tend to be among the slowest to unload. I see. It's they, they really don't maybe have, not don't, that surprising. They don't necessarily have like high volumes that are then incentivizing them to make have efficient operations. However, so, the deal is though that he he does surmise that many of them might be like L, part of LTL shipments and really I mean you, you, LTL they can't be waiting around. You you disrupt them for more than 30 minutes and their whole days done because they've got other stops to make. So I think he was trying to make a little bit of sense of that. And also, while he he thinks that maybe um, some of this is seasonal, where I think uh, come July, the electronics market falls off and and, and wait times are a lot less. Yeah. Um, Right now, we don't have enough. Is that true? We don't. Yeah, that's it. It goes down. If last year, like we don't have year over year data yet because we haven't done a full cycle. Um, but um, right now, you know, wait times are up, you know, almost as much as as 300 minutes. And uh, oh, and, Lord. and and last July, at least, they were they went under 200 minutes, which is um, apparently it is a notoriously slower time for electronic sales. Um, hmm. So that's interesting. That it is. And so I mean, we we've got. Uh, I would our, think I think the mm-hmm. most electronic sales would be sort of back to school and then. Holidays, yeah. I, holidays, I really you would think it would really pick up, but yeah. But also, like, kind of like, oh, like buying a laptop for my kid who's about to go to college, buying an iPad for my 
high schooler buying a cell phone for my, you know, new eighth grader, whatever. It well, is. you've got a lot of kids. No, I only have one two-year-old, um, but she has a laptop, an iPad, <laughs> and a cell phone. <laughs> see, I, yeah, I mean, maybe you're right. I, you know, I, I get I get them new electronics um, whenever they break them. So there's, you know, really no <laughs> seasonality <There's> to it. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, that is your weekly market update, such as we have it. I mean, I will just go ahead and tell our, our audience, uh, if you're not aware of it already, uh, volumes, uh, you know, freight volumes – um, are are still high. They're steady. They're steady Eddie for the most part. In fact, they they kind of slightly ticked up towards the very end of March. Nice quarter yeah, one. Yeah, in the end of quarter, end of month. That makes sense. Which Donnie Gilbert, our market expert, says is uh, to be expected as everybody's pushing for those uh, last last uh, quarter and month results. And they have fallen just slightly here to begin April, which they did last year too. The thing that's also falling hand in hand are rates. Wow, JP. I haven't seen rates this low in my life. <laughs> I'm saying like right. they're like 5.1. Oh, rejections. Uh, Tender rejections. Yes, 5.1%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, dude, we were saying that was low at 6.8 and it's 7.8. I mean, yeah, well, compared to they, they there is just so much surplus. Anecdotally so on Facebook, capacity. on Facebook the owner operators are still complaining about, you know, Guys, five trucks buying a six truck. People they're adding, still doing people it. adding new trucks and trailers. Yeah, they're still doing it. I mean, I think you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Or it's, is this? I don't know. I saw some. I saw some. Um, it's actually if you look the new chart of the week uh, by by Strickland compares uh, new truck orders to three year uh, three year old model used truck prices. And it seems like new, you know new truck orders have fallen off precipitously um, by sixty six percent. Right. That doesn't that doesn't really surprise us. We've had like a whole year of record orders. I think it basically just signals the end of this current replacement cycle that we went through. Yeah. Um, but they're but holding their pri- their value. What's remarkable right? is that yeah the three year old trucks are still holding their value, meaning that your owner operators and small fleets are continuing to buy buy buy. <clears throat> Even as more inventory is being dumped into the market by these by these uh, large carriers replacing their trucks, the, there's enough demand out there to keep that to keep that price up, which is you know I think that's ultimately that's why tenor rejections are so low. Well, that uh, you heard it here first, or perhaps. Maybe at a second, but this is your <laughs> weekly market update, and uh, and we're we're uh, you know bringing it to you each and every week, and we love doing it. And now let's talk about some of the headlines of the week. It was a uh, an interesting week of uh, a couple of fascinating acquisitions, and also a controversy a controversy about um, you know that the border the borders taking oh, yeah, headlines yeah, yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Uh well let's uh let's dive into it. JP, you called some of this. You you covered the uh is it iconique or uh <laughs> It's iconic. Oh it's iconic, okay. Iconic. Uh well they really invested in truckstop.com, which um you know, I like truckstop truckstop.com. They've been around for a while. Yeah, it's like a what, a twenty year old company. Started in I think 1995, little little over. Okay, okay, 
four or five years. Almost. Scott Moscrip, I believe, was the original founder. He was like a kind of a data guy. You know, this is like pre-internet days. And uh, he had, I forget what it was, but he had like, he was, he had left his job in Washington as a data dude. And I, I forget all that, all that was going on, but the, he was moving out west and he saw a sign that said, load boards to anywhere, like call here. Huh. And uh, and so that was literally and metaphorically a sign. It gave him an idea. And he started thinking, well, how can we create? Basically, the long and short was a load board uh, of that was transparent, that wasn't itself a broker, but that was trans that could help other brokerages. And, right. You right. know, over the over it's over a long period of time, they uh, have stayed true to the vision. And uh, well. Tell yeah. us about Iconic. <clears throat> Iconic. Iconic Capital. Iconic Capital is really interesting. They are a honestly uh, sort of a paradoxical venture capital company um, with offices in San Francisco, Palo Alto, New York, Singapore. Uh, they're they're paradoxical because they're both very well known, but also quite shadowy in right. some ways. They. So a venture capital company, the people, you know, the venture capitals themselves are partners or general partners. Those are the people who uh, founders of startups are pitching their companies to, trying to raise money from them, et cetera. You also have the what are called limited partners. The limited partners are the people who give the money to the venture capitalists to therefore then go and invest, and so. The venture capitalists will actually raise money themselves before they, and they're pretty high it. profile people, right? Yes, and in this case, iconic, uh, iconic's limited partners, although they're not disclosed on the website, um, a number of investigative journalists have been able to sort of figure out who they are. It's essentially a who's who of uh, Silicon Valley billionaires. Um, we're talking Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Dust, Dustin Moskovitz. Sheryl Sandberg, all from Facebook, of course. Uh, Jack Dorsey, the founder of uh, Twitter, and, Twitter Square. and Square. Reed Hoffman, the legendary Silicon Valley investor who founded uh, LinkedIn. Um, it's big, big names, a lot of money. Um, and they have a certain view. To, I mean, you, you, when you see those people together, you think, okay, these are tech. These are tech people who have all built multi-billion-dollar uh, tech companies, and so that's probably the kind of thing that they're interested in investing in. And so it, it makes you. It forces you to kind of ask certain questions about the deal and infer different things. Um, yeah, so they have an uh, uh, truckstop.com has an uh, annual revenue that seems to be ballparked between 110 and 120 million. Uh, right. So and and you're saying like the way that these valuations work in the article was like uh, it's yeah. not about EBITDA. It's about right. it's about like it's about eight to nine times the the valuation. It, it, so it's so. So it's a billion. Well, so, yeah. No. So what they what's interesting about the way that Silicon Valley people and these tech investors think about SaaS companies, software as a service companies. Mm-hmm. Is that instead of like a normal private equity group where they're buy or buying, they're valuing company based on a multiple of EBITDA, earnings before, interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. 
they're valuing the company based on a multiple off their gross revenue. Yeah. They don't care about profitability at this okay. point. They're foot yo. And so yeah, they're 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 taking truckstop.com's truck gross revenue multiplying it by eight or nine times and that's how they're arriving at the value of the company. And so uh, so we know. don't know how much was actually invested in them. No, uh, we, you know, and uh, honestly, um, you know, these numbers were not disclosed by truckstop.com. We know right. people who know people who know, you know, I mean, we've, th- these are what we consider whisper numbers. Uh, we, we know that they're accurate. In fact, I was, you know, in, t- in conversation with the truck stop, they, felt uncomfortable with us publishing them, but they didn't ultimately dispute the accuracy uh, of the numbers. So in any case, um, we believe that the one, the near $1 billion valuation was pre-money before any investment. Um, but now they, okay. own, but now they own, you know, the majority of the company. And so you can think about how much they probably invested. So um, I think one of the, the, the fun parts about like, you, you know, people listening to a, a <clears throat> podcast such as us, like we get to kind of speculate and we, it's one of the fun things that, you know, we're, we're it's a little looser than uh, the, the news and so, per se. <laughs> right. So, well, like what's your, you know, like, I guess I got a couple of questions about this, such as uh, just, what do you think here? What's going on? First of all, overall, do we see truckstop.com as, a load board? Essentially, it's a load board. Do we see this acquisition as developing something of like a platform as a service? More, more like where you kind of people can customize their, the, this, the, you know, the way they want. Is that, is that the high value mark here? And overall, I guess the question is, you know, why truckstop.com? Yeah, truckstop.com. It's a load board. It's that's how it started off, but they also do automated load matching. They clear credit and insurance questions for carriers and, and brokers who want to do business together. They offer factoring services. They, you know, do all different sorts of, of things to. Uh, well, so you know, I interviewed the CEO of Truckstop.com, Paris Cole, and he yeah. basically saying we're never going to be a broker, and I took. You know, he he and wanted consistently said that and for he, twenty years. Yeah, and he wanted to insist on that, and that kind of makes sense to me because ultimately, when you're viewed as this like SaaS platform and you're getting these rich multiples and rich valuations, why get in a brokerage? Why expose yourself to the cycles of the freight market? Like, yeah, you've got a special place. It's a yeah, it's a like niche. you've got you've got Mark Zuckerberg giving you as much money as you want, and you're going to grow this marketplace and do this thing. Like, why say, oh, like. You don't want to tell your investors, oh, if the economy turns to shit, I'm going to make less money. Like, you, you want to be above all of that. You want you want to have this special yeah, kind of, okay. of of sort of tech aura around yeah. you. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but what he said was, we will offer any service or product that reduces the friction between our customers, both carriers and brokers, who are trying to do business with each other. Um, I think that a lot of yeah. a lot of the smaller transportation technology companies that we've covered in the past these these little startups that have done seed rounds or Series A maybe Series B uh, that have sort of a niche narrow focus you know maybe they focus on you know reviewing locations maybe they focus on um, optimizing for 
I think I see where you're going with this. If they if they if they are if they're trying to say reduce deadhead miles, so these companies might get snapped up by yes. by, by truckstop.com. They they At might be point. they might be essentially destined to be features on someone else's platform. The other final thing I just want to mention because you brought it up, the idea of a platform as a service. This was really interesting word. Uh, or a term, I guess, um, coined by Mark Benioff, right. the, the founder of Salesforce. And if you're if your company uses Salesforce, you know that uh, there are tons of little startups out there who build custom applications that interact with Salesforce and do different things with it. I mean, I think even like a, com- a company like Chattanooga's like Ambition is is sort of tied to Salesforce, and like you do things. In Salesforce, you communicate with your customers. You get ambi- it feeds into Ambition. You get Ambition points. You close a deal in Salesforce. Ambition knows about it. Plays a funny video. Everybody cheers. Like, like that is the way that Salesforce is a platform where other developers can come in and build applications on top of the data that, that you're creating. We hear and, a little bit about that about um, blockchain. I, 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 you know, like you yeah. hear about like yeah, yeah, like Ethereum being a platform. You know, and, and encouraging developers to come in and build stuff. I think dApps. we'll see more of this. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, because they're building sort of the architecture for all of that. Um, and I guess where I'm going with this is once truckstop.com has built this massive liquid marketplace of loads connecting to capacity even even capturing you know maybe the negotiations between brokers and carriers and 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 pulling all that data together and really generating density on almost every lane of the country like what if the, if that if they could open that up for developers and allow other companies to build custom apps that exist sort of with, you know, basically you, if you have truckstop.com, you can also have this special function built by this other team that does this one thing that's based on, you know, truckstop.com's data. Like, I think that could be really cool and powerful. And honestly, the onus would no longer be on truckstop.com's development team to think of all of the possible different things that people could do with their data. Anyone could come in Build something cool for whatever particular reason, and that would add value to their to the whole platform. Like, and that's ultimately like that kind of company would be super valuable because you have other people coming in to make money, sell their product. It's based on yours, and it makes your whole ecosystem that much more, you know, sort of vibrant. I suppose does that um, makes sense. It it does. Um, and I suppose uh, as we're, you know, we're talking. Um, might be a little bit of out of order the way that we constructed um, our headlines, but I feel like you know along the same exact lines here is uh, Providence Equity buying Global Trans back from the Jordan Company after just eight months. Yeah, that you want to give us some of the highlights of this? It's really interesting. Uh, it Global is. Trans. It is Global Trans. You know, was founded not so long ago, about you know ten years. Ten years. Um, Strong track record of growth. Obviously, now they're a top 10 3PL in the country. Uh, they're on a revenue run rate of north of $1.5 billion, which is huge. Um, and the headline grabber here. The headline is, grabber is, is that Providence Equity Partners bought them back from the Jordan Company after they sold them to the Jordan Company eight months ago, back in June of 2018. <laughs> really confusing. I was I was really wondering why they would do that. It turns out it's fairly simple. Um 
the entity, the part of Providence Equity that sold Global Trans last year was their strategic growth fund, sort of almost is growth equity. That's it's almost like venture capital. Like so, right. so they had this they had this fund that invested a smaller amount of money in Jordan Company. Um, they so just to put numbers to it, Providence and Susquehanna led a forty million dollar growth equity round for uh, for, for Global Trans twenty eighteen. Ended up selling it to the Jordan Company for f- about four hundred million dollars. Uh, sorry, sorry. They invested in twenty fourteen, sold it in twenty eighteen. Um, in the meantime, in, 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 Glo- in Global Trans partnered with the Jordan Company. They loved the Jordan Company. They uh, talked to some investment bankers who weren't involved necessarily in the deal, but knew about it, and kind of said uh, Global Trans had been blowing its growth plan out of the water. Um, in the meantime, back in the Providence Equity Partners, they raised money for a new fund, a new big equity fund. They raised, you know, nearly you know five billion dollars. And they knew, and they knew Global Trans. Yeah, they were wanted to have them back in their portfolio. They wanted to kind of take them to the next level, so they bought them back from the Jordan Company um, for a one hundred percent return in eight months. <laughs> uh, that's that's what that's what people think it was about. I mean, we know that uh, you know Renee Krug, the CEO of Global Trans, told me on the phone that. Global Trans had more than doubled EBITDA in eight months, um, so that implies at least a one hundred percent return for for Jordan Company, which, when you annualize that out to a whole year, looks even better. Um, really phenomenal job. I mean, it, it basically just shows, like, first of all, the Jordan Company is really smart. Secondly, the Global Trans leadership team is really killing it right now. Um, and that goes for you know Bob Farrell as well, the executive chairman as well as Renee. Um, they're doing an outstanding job, growing both organically and by acquisition. I think they've made nine acquisitions since January of 2017, which is kind of you know it's pretty uh, unprecedented. Um, but yeah, they've got you know they're this kind of agent based brokerage model. They buy up other shops, they they give them their technology, make them more efficient, you know, cut costs a little bit, and just um, you know, just keep on tacking on cash flow. Whatever it is, it's impressive. Yeah, it was cool. It was, it was a big deal, and it was really it was a, it was kind of stunning. Like a lot of people were like, "Whoa!" Because a normal a normal private equity cycle, you buy a company, you build it up over the course of four or five years, right? Before you sell it, not eight months. Uh, Renee. Krug, Krug, Krug mm-hmm. uh, who you uh, inter- he, he talked with, um, she, I think, was the CFO for five years before coming into the CEO role. And she sort of led the charge on a lot of their acquisitions. So she's coming from that kind of uh, background, and yeah. she's you asked her to reflect. And Lord knows how much uh, money she's been making off these off these deals back and forth with the, the sort of what the capital oh. structure for management looks like. Yeah, I think. But she's. I mean, she. I mean, whatever. She deserves it. I mean, the, doing this com- all right. This company's blown up. Um, it's you know came kind of out of. If you look at the other top ten companies, you know, you see people like Bio. C.H. Robinson and Echo and Coyote and TQL, P- SunTech, TTS, people that have been around for a long time. And then you see Global Trans, you're like, oh, wait, wait Global Trans? Like, who's Global Trans? Right. Yeah, they're, 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 they've really got something going. I think they're on the radar screen. Oh, I yeah. think they're now on the radar screen, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so, well, uh, you know, in a series of tweets starting last Friday and with some corrections coming in, 
this week on like Tuesday, uh, Trump said that if uh, all of these illegal immigrants keep crossing our border, he's just going to shut it down. That yeah, got close the, the border. Yeah. That kind that uh, it, that blow the blowback of that has been uh, kind of a cro- f- coming back phenomenal. coming from across the political spectrum. Oh, I have to absolutely. Say. Um, it would be di- if if he were to do this, the president. This you know, basically, people from across the political spectrum of all different kinds of industries just said this would be devastating to the American economy. And so on Tuesday, the first, the first, yeah, thing, the, well, the first thing you yeah. have to wonder too is like, yeah. okay, if he can shut down, if he can just shut down the border, does he really need to build a wall? Like, what's if he can shut down the border anytime he wants? What's the point of the wall? Well, I mean, so so you so you don't have to shut it down. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it's just kind of it, it makes it seem less emergent. Like it's like if you can just do that. In, in any case, that's not the point. The point is that well, it would be devastating to shut it down. I, I mean, yeah, so yeah, Like yeah, I mean, yeah. a wall is you can still let things come and go. Um, I'm just. I don't know. I'm no, going right. to push back on that a okay. tiny bit. But. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> I didn't know you, you loved Trump so much. Uh, really what I love is like um, I would love to see just sort of like an invisible electronic fence that was pure tech. You know, that's <laughs> it's it. like, like – And I would love to like just have like, like little UFOs in the sky just kind of zi- – just like z- – you know, zap, zapping zap people? Any movement. Just any movement across the board. What about, what about wildlife? <laughs> um well, what about the sandhill cranes that migrate across the border? You know that, that that's. I'm sorry to them. Now let's talk about. Let's keep it on the economy. Okay. You know, not All wildlife. Right. Okay. Um, and economically, it would be. Uh, you know, you could. Uh, you could. You know, make a, a two thousand mile wall and still have uh, the economy run. But this would be like, hey, I'm just going to shut it all down. It doesn't matter what's happening in Venezuela or whatever else, wherever else, and. Uh, uh, and and in any way, on Tuesday, somebody L- yeah, I forget who Larry Kudlow, the uh, director chairperson of the National Economic Council, said that trucks could still he said cross that, yeah, Mexico. The, he said they're basically looking at ways, looking at ways to um, mitigate any kind of potential economic damage that would result from a border shutdown. Saying that they they would let the freight economy flow through, let trucks go through. And I just um, feel like that's easier said than done. You know, well, like what are you gonna do? Well, here's like, the, yeah, so he kind of had to walk this back a little bit because yeah. lots of different people, everyone from you know the Cato Institute to libertarian the, think tank, right to um, you know the auto industry economists to spokespeople for. Uh, North American Produce Association said that right. you, you know the American auto industry would shut down within a week if we closed the border because 37% of all of our auto parts are made in in Mexico and you know they, they don't keep massive inventories and basically it's like yeah we and we have like you can't, Mexico, ship, a, you can't ship a car that doesn't have all its parts Mexico is uh, a, a, our third largest trading partner right after amounts, Canada and China uh, uh, amounts to 612 billion annually. Uh, and fifty-seven percent of that is, uh, or about three hundred and forty-seven billion, is represented by the goods that Mexico sends to the U.S. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, you know, so what? What's the like? In, in one, you 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 pointed out, you illustrated just in Laredo, Texas alone, 
uh, where you know, well, it, a lot happens there. It yeah, accounts it's, for it's, 37 percent of all the U.S. Yeah, Mexico it's a huge trade. port of entry. But just let's, let's just like just try to wrap your head around this. Six a, a roughly sixteen thousand trucks pass through there every day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So like that's just one port of entry, and that's just so it just gives you a little bit of a sense. To me, that that illustrates just like just a little in microcosm the 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 volume yeah. that we're yeah. talking about. And honestly, dude, and this is what I'm trying to say is like you can't just say, well, these are going to be the freight lanes where everything's okay and everything else is just going to be like categorically and easily stopped. Like it's all there's already backups. Yeah, there's like like the, eight and, hours of her ten hours. Yeah, different places. Um, because of a lot of the instability in Central America, a lot of the the migrant uh, caravans and and sort of people, uh, you know, coming coming into the border, being detained at the border, um, the Department of Homeland Security and ICE have had to divert a lot of border agents from customs duties to immigration duties. So dealing with incoming goods, they were dealing with incoming goods, now they're dealing with incoming people. And that has created uh, truly massive delays at the border um, for a lot of trucks coming in. So there's already been significant disruption. Um, The only other thing I would say on this issue is that even if Kudlow is right and the Trump administration closes the border to people only, that would still have a pretty, you know, significant economic impact. We're talking about roughly five hundred thousand legal crossings uh, a day. No, yeah, a day. I think there's five million uh, U.S. employees that need to cross every single day. Yeah, and so five million. And so it's like you're talking about workers, shoppers. Uh, you know, people, you know, tourists, uh, students, people who, you know, like. And this co- is in company, California as well, not co- just Texas. Company, it's all, yeah, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, places that employ people on, you know, temporary bases, things like seasonal bases. You know, if, if you think about produce season in the Imperial Valley, like, I would suspect that a large number of those workers are Mexican or at least coming through the southern border. Um you know, and so, so even if even somehow if it, even if you let trucks to, through, yeah, people just, all people need to legally come through too. I mean, that's that's or at least it would be devastating. At least, yeah, it's there's going to be a significant economic impact. We've talked um, a lot about the headwinds. We've talked about the government. You know, we're like, you know, some economists are saying like, hey, it looks like we might just now be kind of climbing out of one of the headwinds of the government shutdown. The thirty. 34 or five days of that. Perfect time to shut down the border. <laughs> right. Another thing to have to recover from. I just don't know anymore. Um, well, anyway, uh, stocks. Let's just let's just hope none of that happens. And it's just, a, you know, much ado about nothing. Oh, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. OK. Uh, well, and our final headline are the stocks are stumped. Well, their stocks I mean, went st- down stock, a little stock bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Their stocks went down a little bit. Lifts um, since they went IPO. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's like it's Ipo. like it's like I'm so cool. I know how to you know just like call it like not to say IPO, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay, okay, yeah, right. That's I'm 
I move and shake, people. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, so they're, they're stu- they're, they 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 went IPO, and uh, they you know I feel like Lyft kind of like they're like we're gonna get out of he- get get out ahead of the people we've been behind, uh, you know Uber, Uber yep. and let's go IPO. And anyway, they did, and uh, apparently their stock kind of you know drifted down a little bit, and in the like immediately thereafter. You can tell me the details. Something like seventy-one dollars per share to sixty-seven, a, a few dollars down, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and uh, but yeah. but the, it went down. Am I? Is that correct, or am I? Is it a percentage? No, it's it's, it's, it's something it's like it's something like that. Uh, well, let me actually. I can look it up right now. Now we can. This is to me is a good news story. Uh, but you could, if you were cynical about it, you could you could say, well, now they're doing. So they're at seventy-one ninety-five. So this is actually. F- kind of fine like honestly they yeah opened it went up from 72 so to 67 in 70 no no they're well right now they're, they're it's close i just checked it on my phone they, it, it closed today it closed on thursday at uh 72 9 or 71 then it's back up um well, what was interesting about after the, what happened? This is interesting. What was interesting about the uh, Lyft IPO is that initially they were going to price the stock at seventy two dollars, but when they did the roadshow, they found so much interest from investors that they decided to bump up the price to seventy eight dollars. So now, after you know a couple of weeks of trading, it's back down to seventy two, which is what they were originally yeah. thinking anyway. Well, what they've done you know, is not, um, not that not that bad. I mean, they're, they're doing something that's really good, and we would love to see uh, more public companies kind of do this. Uh, there's a new initiative where they're going to dedicate $50 million a year or 1% of their uh, earnings, whichever is more, <laughs> well, to transportation they have, they don't programs. Well, have any earnings, so. Well, to, to transportation programs around the country. And they're calling it the Lyft City Works Program. Uh, and uh, well, or profits, but you know, which, whichever is larger, to support locally driven transportation uh, th- and other initiatives to ab- improve people's lives. They're, they're starting also in like you know places where there are uh, low income residents, and they're they're going to work with <clears throat> places like the the YMCA of Greater Los Angeles, Path, and the People of Concern. And there's all just there's all different kinds of uh, ways in which I feel like this like pu- this will do a lot of public uh, it'll connect a lot of public goodwill to to uh, to some of these ride sharing ride hailing companies that have been under a lot of. <laughs> you're looking at me very so, askew. So you're 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 you're, <laughs> you're falling for this basically. <laughs> I knew I knew you would have the cynical to take. Um, well, like it, it's to me in the end, either they're doing it or not. And like fifty million dollars is fifty million dollars from a public company to uh, right, right. Is it not enough? Should it be ten percent? Um, Should it be like a tithe or an offering? <laughs> like what's I mean? It, I mean it's. It's not that it's not enough. It's just that they're. Is it just a publicity stunt? Yeah, it's it's PR. The Lyft has always been one of their, the ways they've tried to differentiate their brand from Uber is by being the kinder, friendlier, yes, uh, sweatshop of ride hailing. <laughs> hey, um, so you know what I mean? That's... It's like it's like 
we treat our workers better, kind of like we're we're doing more for public transit, kind of. But they have the same business model, right? They didn't like, have a CEO. Like, what they're doing burning and scorching and raising the earth. True. Yeah, they, they don't have as much of an image problem as tra- especially Travis Kalanick did. So they kind of took advantage of that. They seized that opportunity to differentiate themselves. But I mean, honestly. When you get down to brass tacks, especially in large cities like like L.A., uh, New York, Washington, D.C., Houston, places that have public transit, they're stealing market share from public transit companies by offering this concierge, you know, private car service below market rates subsidized by venture capitalists. And so... That is hmm. an unsus- not only is it an unsustainable business model, but it's actually quite destructive of public services. It's you know it, it it contributes to congestion. Actually, it doesn't reduce congestion, unlike what Lyft says, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, they they need to repair their image. They need to protect their image. They need to. It's not just Lyft. It's all ride hailing companies. Yeah, first yeah. Of Lyft all. and Uber are the t- the only two that really matter. Um, in the U.S. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, th- this is what I would say if I was gonna like. Put, for, first of all, yes, it does. I'm not uh, saying I don't use them. I mean, right, it's a course. great it's a great no, product. I'm not gonna point that out. It's a great product. I you know. But it's like it, there is there's like there's a reason why we love it, and it's not destructive necessarily. It's disruptive, and I thought that that was a good word, right? Because when you're disrupting, like yeah. you know, established right, things, you don't have to pay three hundred grand for a taxi medallion to be able to you know take people around town. Right. There's other. There's it's it's flexible. We could go on and on about the good. There's it's good enough that here it is, and that we all use it. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean. I just think that you don't think it's sustainable because it's well, because it's like it's hard to see how they make money. Like either they raise their prices a lot, which would then which would hurt, which would hurt demand for their product. You know, the other the other sort of the reason, though, it adds to congestion is just simply because why does it add to congestion? Like that, like. People like if people are taking rides where they would need to get a ride anyway. To me, that that illustrates more of our infrastructure issue. Well, okay, because it's it's like this. It's like first of all, you have to account for all of the miles that that Uber and Lyft drivers are deadheading. That a normal driver, a, a normal point. driver, okay. wouldn't be on the road during this. So you're only your car is never driving without you in it. So you drive from point to point, then your car is off the road. Whereas then they would have to drive empty to find another ride. You know what I'm saying? If, but that's any taxi. That's any. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's any taxi. It's any taxi. And if the need is there, then it's just I, I, I don't know. I, I would have to. It's also transferring people off of buses and off of subways into Lyft and Uber. That is what. That's the biggest way that it contributes to congestion. Okay. All right. But I mean, that I don't even care about that. I mean, I like, like where we live, where we live, it's not that big of a deal. I think if you if you look at like New York City, where they're starting to think of you know uh, create congestion charges, you know, ca- charging you ten bucks to enter the city at certain times of day, like it, it's probably more of a of an issue. I, you know, when, when you look at like average speed car speed in Manhattan going down from like eighteen miles an hour to fifteen miles an hour, like. Yeah, it makes a difference because, I mean, hell, Manhattan's only 12 miles long, but if it takes you freaking an hour to get across it, like, that sucks. Yeah. Um, okay. In, uh, in any case, in any case, it's – we'll see how this stock plays out. 
I love the fact that they went public. I can't wait for Uber's IPO, uh, not because I necessarily want to buy their stocks, but just because I'm interested in the flood of public data that they will be forced to file oh, with the SEC, and, and we will get greater insight into their businesses. You know, honestly, like Uber has really built a lot of the technology that modern digital freight brokerage uses, you know, matching, you know, loads or people with with rides and, you know, figuring out what it takes to get each side to participate in the market on any given day in any given lane, any given market. So I'm, I'm super fascinated by the companies. I think it's a great product. Don't know if it's a good business or not. You know, time will tell. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're just kind of. I think it's kind of a wait and see. But what you know, Litz is trying to protect its image, and yeah, they're trying to protect their image. Uh, it seems to have uh, in the in the, what I like is our real time is like our article went out and the stocks were still a little down, and that and now a couple of days later um, they actually kind of floated up. Overall, though, like we, you know, hey, look, what's a freight tech company to do? Or what's a, a tech company to do? Like uh, they're supposed to disrupt and then they finally disrupt and then we then we get all mad about all the disruption. I, I don't know. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I know. Like I'm not sad to see like normal taxi companies go out of business. Like I've they've never. Right. Uh, there's the, always a terrible service, terrible price, terrible bloated, product. Bloated price. Yeah. I mean. Well, you have to hail. You have to know where to stand and what gesture to make, or you have to in in smaller cities like Chattanooga or even Nashville. You, they're dispatched, and it takes forever to get there. And yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. And uh, yeah, so it's more efficient. And uh, okay, well, it is time to play big deal or little deal. Oh Lord, what's Here we go. the deal with you? All right, JP, are you ready to play? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay, well, ready or not, here we go. Canadian National lays out $615 million capital plan for Eastern Provinces. Big deal or little deal? I think it's a big deal. Um, any railroad that has embraced uh, precision scheduled railroading that still has a healthy CapEx budget is doing the right thing. March Class 8 truck orders plummet 66% from a year. Big deal or little deal? It's a little deal. Uh, it just means that the replacement cycle for the large enterprise carriers has now come to an end. Departure of Maersk's number two executive marks official end of liner operators' foray into oil and gas. Big deal or little deal? I think it's a little deal. They've been trying to focus more on inland logistics for a long time, and they've already divested themselves of like you know their drilling business and other divisions like that. Researchers trick Tesla autopilot using stickers on the road. Big deal or little deal? I think it's a big deal. It's. And honestly, it's scary as shit. Uh, Walmart is introducing a voice assistant to take on Amazon. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. When the world's largest brick-and-mortar retailer partners in a high-growth niche space with the world's largest e-comp, one of them, and in, in Google, there's going to be a ripple effect for sure. Fast Radius raises $48 million to scale up its additive manufacturing capacity. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. Additive manufacturing is the future of the supply chain, and Fast Radius is well-funded and connected all over the world to advance the technology at hyperspeed. Navistar recalls more than 24,000 international brand trucks for exhaust pipe defect. Big deal or little deal? I mean, it's a big deal to Navistar's bottom line, but overall it's a little deal. Unfortunately, recalls are not extraordinary. 24,000 sounds like a lot, but it's over a four-year period. 
Canadian carrier Bison Transport acquires Wisconsin-based trucking fleet. Big deal or little deal? Little deal. Bison is one of the Canada, Canada's largest fleets, but they acquired a relatively small 320 tr- uh, truck drive van fleet, which will happen their operation. Oh, you just and, oh, blew through the two the minutes, Midwest, dude. and oh, oh man. my god, dude. So it was, it was kind of clock a little, clock awareness, a bro. Thing. Clock awareness. <laughs> Man, I was right at the two minutes. Right at it. Yeah. Do, do you think he started it at the right time? Yeah, I did. I, was, I watched him. <laughs> okay. That was that was totally your fault, dude. It is. You know, the past several weeks, I just have not been on my game. Um, man, I wish it wasn't my fault. It's, it's normally my fault. Not anymore. You've gotten you've gotten really. I really liked. I thought the. Um, I thought the, <laughs> the Tesla big deal, uh, that, that, that's scary as shit. That's funny, and it was super short. Well, it's so, true, dude. They, they put down three stickers on the road, and they made a car like crash into the barrier. <laughs> like, that's, that's not cool. Right. I mean, well, that's, I think, our fear of, like, like, you know, everybody's like, what about our messed up lines and stuff on these roads? How are these, like, yeah. automation yeah. robot things supposed to... Know what's going on? No, I, yeah, I know, man. Um, all right, well, <laughs> that's it. Um, let's let's try to do better next time. As always, we'll try to do better next time. Continuous improvement. Uh, apologies for any Sometimes. and all errors that we made. Um, and uh, thanks again to, yeah. to Triumph Pay. <laughs> and uh, and you know, it's just been it's just been great. Uh, thanks to our um, dedicated listeners. Uh, please keep tuning in. Thank you for all the love, and we will keep bringing it to you uh, for next week in our 63rd episode. As always, we go into more detail about each of the topics we've talked about today on our website, FreightWaves.com. We will continue to publish this podcast weekly, so be sure to subscribe to What the Truck on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Also, make sure to leave us a review to let us know what you think of our new podcast. That'll do it for today. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week on What the Truck. Truck.